The White House tells the FBI it can interview anyone in its Kavanaugh investigation. Does the FBI need the president's permission? A story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown, a Texas-based veteran of the FBI on questions of scope and independence in the investigation of the Supreme Court nominee. Also, we'll hear from the Texas scientist who can now call himself Nobel Prize winner for his work advancing cancer research. Mexico City 68, new answers about a massacre before the Olympics 50 years ago. And LBJ brought mission control to Houston, but the Texas space industry may owe more to Richard Nixon than you might think. All that and more today on The Standard. No matter where you are, the Kavanaugh investigation top of mind across the Lone Star State on this October 2nd, 2018 Texas Standard Time on a Tuesday. I'm David Brown. Thanks for joining us. The battle over the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court happening against more than just the backdrop of the Me Too movement, but in the middle of a midterm campaign season, politically charged doesn't even begin to describe the public concerns over the nominee and the serious allegations against him brought by at least three women. And Senate Republicans vow a confirmation vote by week's end. The New York Times reports Democrats have sent a list of two dozen witnesses to be interviewed. Republicans have four names on their list. The president says the FBI can expand its investigations to anyone. But wait, who's in charge here, the politicians or the FBI? Dennis Franks was an attorney and 22-year veteran of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He's currently president of Investigative and Security Global Solutions based in Texas. Mr. Franks, welcome to the Texas Standard. Good morning. Thank you. My pleasure. A week. How typical is that for an FBI investigation? One week. It's very atypical. Usually a background investigation of just involving one person can take up to three months or even longer. I was stunned to, to try to imagine the FBI catching up to the call for this investigation at the end of last week. What would be involved there? How do you get those gears into motion so quickly? My understanding is they were gearing up before uh, Friday anyway, just in case, which is you know smart to anticipate this possibility. In, in my estimation, it's, it's kind of like creating a mini task force in which they pull agents uh, and other analysts from uh, other assignments to, to just focus on this. My, my take is they've done a good job of, of planning and doing what they can to accomplish this task in a, in a short amount of time. Right now, the headlines are, are full of reports that the White House has told the FBI to interview anyone necessary for its investigation. But I wonder, given your experience in the FBI, does the Bureau need the president's permission to interview anyone necessary? Well, these my understanding is initially there, there was some limit to the scope of the background investigations. Now, l- let me preface this by saying I'm, I do not consider myself an expert on background investigations. I really did not conduct them. I was generally aware of them. And this is really called a special inquiry because it, it's a consideration for a judgeship and a high level, the highest level judgeship in, in this case. There may be parameters on some of these, but it would be unusual to have somebody in, in certain positions, and in this case, the president is saying exactly who you can interview and not interview. That would be highly unusual. Does this affect the perception of the FBI as above politics? And that's been obviously an important issue for the past couple of years. 
Yes, it has. I mean, it's it's come up, uh, you know, as you referred to in you know the recent past, and you know the FBI's eyes been blackened a bit because of that, because of the perception of nothing else, and this does not. <laughs> this does not help that situation at all. Um, well, and I, I, you know, I feel for those involved because it's it's kind of like walking on a fence. They, they've got to be careful about how they're conducting themselves and the perception. That's the biggest thing here. Right now, obviously, the conversation centers around the accused and uh, the accuser. But think about the outcome. If it is negative for Kavanaugh, his supporters are going to say this is a hit job. If the investigation fails to find something that knocks out the nominee, others will say it was a sham. Is this a no-win situation for the FBI? It is, but it's not it, not unusual. It's, it won't be the first time I think the FBI has, has been in position of appearing to have some sway one way or another. Now, the, I know that the the people the personnel of the FBI are going to do their job they're going to ignore the political optics and they're just going to do their job of determining the facts and and that's really what it comes down to with the background investigation it's not a criminal investigation where opinions are rendered and recommendations are made this is just simply findings of fact which are presented and it, again it's it's not they won't end with opinions they're not going to express whether they think one person's lying or not I think that the way the reports are written and the facts themselves will give the readers the the uh, ability to determine that for themselves. And, and again, that may come to the you know point where it's nothing has changed at the end of the week, and those who have taken a position on one side or the other are not going to change their minds. However, I think there's a chance that new evidence coming to light, new um, statements by people who knew the nominee or knew the accusers one way or other may uh, bring new evidence to light that that uh, may be uh, important as far as credibility and, and any other issues. Dennis Franks is a retired supervisory special agent for the FBI. He's currently president of Investigative Security and Global Solutions, a Texas-based firm. Mr. Franks, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. My pleasure. Thank you. Nearly a year and a half after an arsonist burned down the Victoria Islamic Center in southeast Texas, a new mosque has been built on the same spot as the old one. This weekend, the congregation celebrated by opening their doors to the community, and the Texas Standards' Jill Ament was there. Definitely, this is the most beautiful building in Victoria today. Dr. Shahid Hashmi, a Pakistani immigrant, is president of the Victoria Islamic Center. He's one of the founders of the center and spearheaded efforts to build the original mosque back in 2000. This is my friend from a long time ago. Long, we were in Rotary together. Yes, we were. Yeah. Many of Hashmi's longtime friends were there on Saturday to congratulate him on the completion of the new building, including a local real estate agent, Shirley Buckert. She helped me buy this lot. By the land, yes. By the land. She's yes. the one. My she friend. Helped. Yes. My friend. Yes. It was just grass. So in 1995, we bought it, and then by 2000, we built the old one. Yeah. And uh, it was destroyed in 2017, and now new one is here in 2018. Very proud. Yes. Thank you. Yes, Buckert so was proud. one of hundreds at Saturday's event who provided words of encouragement, accompanied by smiles, hugs, and handshakes to the members of the Victoria Islamic Center. 
Hashmi says the community's support has been key in rebuilding the new mosque. So it's really to appreciate the community uh, who went behind us right from the very first day, a few hours after the uh, tragedy happened. And now uh, they're here to help and celebrate the good days. Thank you for being here. No problem at all. Thank you so much. Omar Rashid has been a member of the Victoria Islamic Center since 1994. Immediately following the fire, he created a GoFundMe page. In all, a little more than $1 million from people across the world were donated to rebuild the new structure. He says without those donations, this new mosque wouldn't have been possible. As I reflect over the last 17 months, what was really... um, significant and incredibly gratifying is um, people's love. Um, You know, almost every single donation um, came with with words of support. Um, People identifying themselves, whether they are Jews or they are Christians or they are atheists, uh, agnostics, whatever the case might be, but uh, they really wanted to express their love. As those in attendance gather to take a peek inside, Dr. Hashmi's daughter, Aruj Qureshi, and granddaughter, Sophia, excitedly and proudly give tours. Now we're here uh, with our beautiful new mosque, and I would like to take a moment to help you show you around. Um, Qureshi points out several touches she likes about the new mosque. Three marble slabs of granite with Arabic lettering were salvaged from the rubble of the old mosque. They now sit atop the entrance of the new one. And in the foyer on the ceiling, a sparkling chandelier hangs from the middle of a crescent moon. Right now what we just stepped into is our community hall. In a large community hall in the back of the mosque, she shows a display with hundreds of cards and letters of support from all over the world. Outside of the hall, a prayer garden encircles a dome from the old mosque. I can't even, I'm overwhelmed and humbled by the, the support and love and then just feeling like, okay, we can do this. It, it's not so hopeless. I was heartbroken and then I wasn't so hopeless. For Qureshi's daughter, Sophia, the past year and a half, while difficult, has been a learning experience. Like Non-Muslims and Muslims together can like come together to like, when something's bad, everyone comes and stands as one, it makes it even better. James Cement is pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Victoria. He was one of many interfaith leaders at the welcoming ceremony and open house. He says he hopes the show of support for the Muslim community in Victoria can provide a learning opportunity for the nation. Sometimes people forget about the small communities or they dismiss the rural areas. It was in a community like this which could best demonstrate interfaith unity, uh, good neighbor, you know, love your neighbor. Boy, you saw that here. For leaders of the Victoria Islamic Center, the new mosque is not only a testament to their faith, but they hope moving forward, it can always be a symbol in their town of how love can overcome hate. Reporting in Victoria, I'm Jill Amon with the Texas Standard. Over the summer, the man accused of setting the mosque on fire was found guilty on three charges, including commission of a hate crime. He'll face sentencing later this month.
And joining us again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Mr. Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. As discussed at the top of the show, the FBI is taking a second look into Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's background, and it's still a hot topic on social media. In Austin, Melissa tweets that the worst part is that even if the FBI finds clear evidence to prove Kavanaugh's guilt, the vast majority of Republicans would still vote to confirm him. In her estimation, she says they would find some way to justify or minimize what he did. Meanwhile, in Dallas, Linda Hill says, I will say this, if Judge Kavanaugh is not telling the truth to Congress or the FBI, then he's not fit not only to be on the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. but not to be on the court that he's on right now. It's interesting to see how these votes are wavering as we move up to the end of the week, about three Republicans. Yeah, and we'll see what we'll find out. And, And in Houston, Bobby Patterson, she has a different perspective. She says, Judge Kavanaugh had several FBI investigations. They have all come up clean. The FBI never found anything in any way against him. Y'all are doing everything you can do to drag him and his family through the mud, referring to the people calling for the investigation. Mm -hmm. She says that enough is enough. Yeah, no shortage of takes out there, David, on this one. And like you said, yeah, it's going to be a moving target. and We're just going to have to see what we see going up toward the end of the week. As you can imagine, the conversation is rather engaged on our Facebook page. Just look for Texas Standard or join the conversation on Twitter. You know the handle, right? It's at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is looking for your comments. He's going to be joining us again in 35 minutes as the Standard continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU, lead on. Hey, it's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The phone's been ringing off the hook at Dr. James P. Allison's house. The Houston scientist has been getting congratulatory calls after being awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine this year, an honor he shares with a scientist from Japan. As Houston Public Media's Davis Land tells us, the co-winners are being recognized for advances in cancer treatments. The Nobel Committee says James P. Allison and Tashku Honjo both discovered ways to use the body's immune system to fight off cancer. Allison heads the immunology department at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. He spoke at a press conference shortly after the announcement. There are built into the immune system these inhibitory circuits that that uh, stop the immune system at a certain point so that uh, it doesn't hurt normal tissues. Allison said that circuit's controlled by a receptor called CTLA-4, and their treatment method hinges on turning it off. We figured out that CTLA-4 was the brakes on the immune system. I said, well, let's just disable the brakes and see if uh, that, that will allow the immune system to, to uh, attack cancer, and uh, it did. <laughs> the method led to an entirely new class of drugs which have been used to treat melanoma and other cancers. I think we know the basic rules now. We've just got to work hard and, and learn the details and develop more personalized treatments for you know, the majority of patients. Allison says it's the first Nobel given to a cancer therapy. In Houston, I'm Davis Land for the Texas Standard. Dr. Allison received both his bachelor's and doctorate degrees from UT Austin, where Lauren Ehrlich is associate professor of molecular biosciences. Ehrlich told KUT Austin that Allison's Nobel win is inspiring students and staff. He has always really stayed true to his intense desire to understand basic science, while at the same time just creating this joyful environment, always with the eye towards moving it to something clinically relevant. Ehrlich says Allison also has some other talents the Nobel Prize Committee somehow did not recognize. He's a really good harmonica player, and he's played the harmonica with uh, Willie Nelson, so 
he's a huge fan. And, you know, just seeing this huge personality who can do so much for basic science and for patients is really inspiring. Lauren Ehrlich, Associate Professor of Molecular Biosciences at UT Austin. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Lately, we've been talking about evictions in Texas. In the county of the capital city, Travis, 1,100 families were evicted from their homes in the first three months of 2018 alone. Yesterday, we heard about a family who moved in with relatives in Colleen after being evicted from their Austin apartment. But today, KUT Austin's Audrey McGlinchey follows a woman evicted with no place to go. 42-year-old Karen Woodward shows me where she's living. So I got this car kind of running. A gray Honda Civic with a busted bumper. But the radiator is mismatched. So right now my check engine light is on and flashing. The car has barely any power. It goes like 15 miles an hour. Karen's parked the car at a Walmart in Sunset Valley. No one really bothers her here. In the morning, she gets ready for her job as a medical assistant at a pediatrician's office in Westlake Hills. In the parking lot, Karen shimmies into her blue scrubs. And I keep water in the car so I can brush my teeth. And I have an old rag and I'll wash my face and, you know, put deodorant on and clean up the best I can. She sleeps in the front seat. She leans it back as far as it'll go. Windows open. Nights are steamy. It's July in Texas. I wake up several times a night, but, you know, it is what it is. It's where I've got, so. Earlier this summer, Karen was evicted from the two-bedroom home she rented in southwest Austin. She'd been living with an ex-husband, splitting the $1,400 rent. But their relationship soured after an argument. Her ex moved out. He took the TV and his share of the rent. Around the same time, Karen defaulted on a student loan. Her lender started taking some of her paycheck. As we talk, Karen eats mashed potatoes and chicken she bought at the Walmart. She tells me she's good at her work. A big part of her job is giving kids vaccines. If it's going to hurt, I'm going to tell you it's going to hurt. And if it does hurt, it's just going to be for a second. It'll be okay. And a lot of times the kids don't even cry when they get vaccines. Um, I've been doing it for a really long time and I've got a good hand. On days her car won't run, Karen takes the bus as far as she can go. But there's no public transit in Westlake Hills. Sometimes she hitchhikes to the office. Sometimes she's hours late. I feel like I'm on the verge of losing this job because of my issues of getting to work on time and being able to perform my duties as I'm supposed to. And if I lose this job, that's it. I, I just, I don't, I don't know what I'll do. I, I really don't know what I'll do. Eviction isn't just a condition of poverty, it's a cause of poverty. That's a line in the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Here's Desmond on NPR's Fresh Air. We have studies that show that eviction is linked to job loss, and if any of your listeners out there have been evicted, they know exactly why that is. Desmond is a sociologist at Princeton University. It's such a consuming, stressful event. It causes you to make mistakes at work, lose your footing there. That's what Karen was afraid of, and she got pretty close to losing her job in August. Things were getting worse. Her car officially died. For two weeks, she ended up living on the streets. She had trouble going to work. Her boss had to reprimand her. That's when we lost touch. Weeks later, she cropped back up. I headed to where she was staying. How are you? A converted school bus on a couple acres of land in North Austin. She met the guy who owns it at a convenience store, and he offered to let her stay. 
She said she feels safe here. We settle on some lawn chairs. Karen says she feels no closer to getting a stable place. Now, I feel like I'm stuck, evicted. Karen estimates she'll need a couple thousand dollars for a deposit and first month's rent to get into her own place. She's still far from that. She got the loan company to stop garnishing her wages, but she poured a lot of money into her car, borrowing cash from people along the way. And then there are all the extra expenses. One big thing she hadn't anticipated, it's been hard to cook. The trailer she's staying in has a microwave and a one-burner hot plate. Being homeless is expensive. It is. It really is. You know, I have to eat out every day. I spend 20, 20, 30 bucks a day just eating. Just eat, just breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Karen says her mental health has really suffered. She tells me when she was living on the streets, she thought about killing herself. In the, in the office where I work, there's um, the rooms where we take the patients and um, little kids come in and they, uh, there's a little basket in the corner and it has um, books and, and toys. I stack the books up in, in uh, uh, largest to smallest order and, and all the little animals go together and all the little rolly toys go together. So I clean it out each time a patient comes in and out. There's a book there and on the front of the book, there's a zebra and there's a little boy standing next to the zebra and it says, the little boy's got his arms out. And the title of the book is, You're Here for a Reason. And that stupid title on the book has really saved me a lot of times. I found a copy of this kid's book online. Each page has a picture of a boy playing with different animals, pandas and tigers and a kangaroo, and some text. It rhymes and it's uplifting, as you can imagine. One page got me thinking of Karen. It starts, life can be tricky, there isn't a doubt. You'll skin your knees trying to figure it out. For the Texas Standard, I'm Audrey Malinchi. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Oil companies say a shortage of pipelines to move their product could lead to a slowdown in the next six months. That's according to a survey of oil executives the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas released Monday. Michael Plant is a senior economist at the Dallas Fed. A large majority of respondents think pipeline capacity won't be sufficient until the last quarter of 2019 or later. Oil and gas production is still growing overall, but the survey suggests it may have grown at a slightly slower pace over the summer. Two of the largest hospital chains in Texas have announced plans for a merger that would form a huge system running from Houston to Austin to Dallas. Houston Public Media's Gail DeLauter has more. A final decision is expected next year on the proposed merger between Houston's Memorial Hermann Health System and Dallas-based Baylor Scott & White Health. 
The two nonprofit systems operate a total of 68 hospital campuses and serve over 30 counties. Memorial Hermann President and CEO Chuck Stokes adds that one of the goals of the merger is to make health care more accessible, considering the state's large number of uninsured. Through this new proposed system, we have a unique chance to reinvent health care and make a profound difference in the lives of millions of Texans. Right now, the two systems have about 73,000 employees, along with close to 5,000 unfilled positions. In Houston, I'm Gail DeLauder. Perhaps like rapper and producer Missy Elliott, you can't stand the rain. But all this rain we've been getting recently throughout much of Texas is helping to reduce dry conditions here. Jessica Blunden can attest to that. She's a climatologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Last week, there was a lot of rain, a lot of moisture coming in from the Gulf of Mexico that brought several inches to some areas in Texas. Previously, a lot of the state had been under some form of either dry conditions or some form of drought, and that's really helping to alleviate the dryness. Blunden authored the most recent drought monitor report on Texas. Only about 20 percent of the state is experiencing some level of drought now compared to almost 48 percent just three months ago. And she says more rain is ahead. So we're expecting to see um, conditions improve across most of the state. Um, There's a small area in the west which has kind of missed out on the rainfall um, around El Paso and a little bit east of there. But hopefully we'll be seeing more rain in that area, too. One year ago, less than 5% of the state was experiencing drought. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Plateau Land and Wildlife, hosting wildlife management seminars across Texas for landowners in ag. Learn more at PlateauWildlife.com. 33 minutes past the hour. Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. It is great to have you with us. Happy birthday, Houston. Do you copy? This week back in 1958, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, officially became operational. Now, when we think of NASA, I suppose we often think of the tailored mythology of the astronaut as American space adventurer exploring the frontiers beyond the clouds. But in fact, the idea was launched, you might say, as President Dwight D. Eisenhower mulled over options for keeping hostilities with the Soviets from becoming a third world war. But as Eric Berger, senior space editor at Ars Technica, writes, this anniversary serves as a reminder that we can thank then-Vice President Richard Nixon for NASA. How so? Eric Berger joins us now. Thanks so much for joining us on The Standard. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What role did uh, Nixon play in shaping the mission of the space program? Well, after uh, the, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik in 1957, the U.S. was trying to figure out how to respond And the real question was whether it should be led by the military or led by some civilian space agency um, that didn't yet exist. And so it came down to President Eisenhower calling a meeting in February of 1958, and the vice president was there. And the president was leaning toward a military-led action. That was his background. Mm -hmm. Um, The military, the Army and Navy had missile programs already underway, and It was actually Nixon and the president's then new science advisor, a guy named James Killian, who said, wait, 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 no, let's think about this. Let's 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 say if we're trying to win the hearts and minds, not only of Americans, but people around the world, it would be a nice contrast 
um, for the United States to have a program kind of out in the open, you know, non-military peaceful purposes using space. And so you would have the Soviet clandestine military program in the United States with kind of what became NASA. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to imagine Nixon making that argument, especially when you consider his reputation over the years, certainly uh, during and after his presidency. He was seen as someone who was uh, anything but transparent. But here he is in 1958 making the case for a NASA that, uh, while retaining its military options, I suppose, and its applications, nonetheless is, uh, is trying to present itself as being open and for the good of, of all mankind. Yeah, I think, you know, for all of his personal flaws, and, and Nixon certainly had many in, in his presidency, came to an ignominious end. I, I think, you know, his, his political instincts are, are pretty good. And, and here he saw, you know, an opportunity because if you think about, you know, put yourself in the United States position back in the 1950s and early 1960s, the country was behind the Russians in space. Mm -hmm. You know, they were doing all of the interesting things. And so this was a way to differentiate the United States and, and sort of put it back on a certain level above the Soviet Union, at least in terms of morals. Well, now, you say uh, in your piece for Ars Technica that uh, this argument uh, about having NASA as a, as a kind of uh, fixture to benefit uh, everyone is coming back into focus now. How so? Well, you know, there are some real questions about where NASA goes this century because the military was not particularly happy in the 1950s and, and hasn't been since that, that the civil agency came in and, and took over human spaceflight. Um, so they're, they're kind of encroaching on NASA, and you've got commercial activities like SpaceX, and, and they're doing interesting things. They're encroaching on NASA. And so there's, there's a real question of what the space agency should do in the coming decades. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that no one else really lands probes on Mars. No one else sends spacecraft to the outer solar system. No one has flown by Pluto, all these kinds of interesting things. And so, you know, NASA still has a, a future in, in exploration. Um, it's just, it's, it's got some issues both from the military interest and, and then on the commercial side well, to deal with. I, I'll say, I mean, you think about President Trump's proposal for a space force, for example. How does that square with NASA and its, say, next 60 years? That's a great question. I think that's something that, you know, will have to be, you know, worked through um, in, in coming years. NASA, you know, technically has nothing to do with the space force. It's, it's an Air Force reorganization, that sort of thing. But... Out of that, you could see Air Force astronauts at some point um, and kind of an erosion of NASA's primacy as the center for putting Americans into space. But presumably NASA would uh, retain its, uh, its mantle as the civilian space program doing science and research in the open while the Space Force takes on a military mission? Yeah, that, that would be the idea, certainly. Eric Berger is senior space editor at Ars Technica. We're going to have a link to his latest at texasstandard.org. And it's a fascinating history of how NASA came to be the organization that we think of it today. Of course, a fixture here in Texas and along the so-called Space Coast. Eric, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are quickly approaching 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. We're going to be revisiting another episode in history, this one in Mexico City as the standard continues. Don't touch that dial.
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. My name is Amy Wong Ma. I first came to Texas from Hong Kong in 1975. You know, it's so funny. 1975. One of my high school friends went to Corsicana, Texas, and wrote us a letter saying that, oh, this is the open sky. I can ride my bike all day long and will not get hit by any cars. So uh, I said, whoa, good grief. That is a good place that we need to go. And then, of course, it was quite a shock because Hong Kong is very cosmopolitan. And because in Canada, Texas, we have the traffic light was hanged by a wire. I feel like I was very lucky. I got introduced to the small town in Texas, the mentality. There's this bonus, you know, in the Texas spirit. I was not raised like that, being a uh, Chinese uh, woman. And it is such a refreshing idea to really trust yourself and to, to be bold. When people ask me, what is my nationality? I would be proudly said, I'm a Texan. <laughs> and I do not find any place uh, in the world that I feel so comfortable. I am Amy Wellmark, and you are listening to the Texas Standard. She's a Texan. You're tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Fifty years ago today, a protest of thousands of students in Mexico City ended with military tanks on the streets and hundreds dead. Now, for the first time since the massacre, the Mexican government itself is acknowledging its role on that October 2, 1968, ordering the killings of student protesters, with a government official now calling it, quote, a crime of the state. That acknowledgement is by no means an apology, but as the Texas Standards Joy Diaz reports, it may help survivors with healing. There's a phrase a kind of mantra René Ortiz Muñiz knows well because it's been whispered by survivors of the student massacre since 1968. We will never forget October 2nd. It's our fight. It's our struggle. But half a century has gone by, and during all those years, those whispers have never led to an open conversation about the killings. In 1968, Yolanda Gil Baeza was just 17, now she's 67, and she says her friends who protested are now either getting up in years or have already passed away. The people in government at the time were even older. Most of them are also gone. That's why Gil Baeza says it's insulting that it took so long for the government to get this conversation started. It's a shame because after 50 years, you can't punish anyone. So this is where things are now. But what was then? What led to the killings? 1968, as you may know, and as René Ortiz Muñiz remembers, was a year of drastic changes and unrest. 
claro que sí, la guerra de Vietnam. Yes, that's true. There was the war in Vietnam, marches, protests, the hippie movement, Bob Dylan, the Black Panthers, the adoption of Asian religions. There was also unrest in Paris, in Argentina, and in Japan. In the U.S., Americans experienced the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. In Mexico, Yolanda Gil Baeza remembers the excitement about the Olympic Games that were about to start on October 12th. But she also remembers anxiety on the part of government officials. If I were to tell you how the unrest started, Gilbaeza told me, you wouldn't believe it. She says that a couple of months before the Olympics, there was a fight at a high school in Mexico City. Apparently, the fight was over a football game. Teachers intervened to no avail, and the police got involved. When police came in, things escalated because at the time, the Mexican government was jumpy, keenly aware that the eyes of the world were on it because of the upcoming Olympic Games. Mexican officials knew the FBI was reporting back almost daily to Washington. One concern for J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was Mexico's friendly relationship with Cuba. The FBI feared Mexican students were embracing communist ideas. Remember, Che Guevara had just recently been killed in Bolivia. So when police in Mexico City couldn't stop the high school fight, the military stepped in. That resulted in the deaths of some students and the arrest of others. Soon after, students started protesting the government's heavy hand. Thousands joined in, and in a matter of weeks, there was a full-fledged movement. Every protest was met with government aggression. Gil Baeza says the students crafted a list of demands. Primero, libertad a todos los presos políticos. Freedom to political prisoners. Abolition of Article 145 of the Federal Penal Code. Abolition of all paramilitary groups. Removal of the top three police chiefs. Compensation to the families of those killed or injured. And the firing of the government officials responsible for the killings. A march had been planned for the evening of October 2nd. It was meant to be a peaceful demonstration. Reporters from all over the world were in Mexico ahead of the Olympics, and students knew they were reporting on their movement. They chose a super posh neighborhood for the rally. Tlatelolco was a community of high rises where artists and intellectuals lived. In the middle of the neighborhood was a massive open area. That's where students gathered, unaware that military tanks and soldiers were surrounding them on the ground and that military snipers sat on the buildings. Reports say a helicopter dropped flares and that was the signal to start the killings. When the shooting stopped, Hundreds were dead, and 19-year-old René Ortiz Muñiz and at least 1,000 others were arrested. The soldiers grabbed me by the hair and they cut it off with their bayonets, just to show their power, just to show me that I was nothing, and that they could do with me whatever they wanted. Students were tortured, others killed while in custody. Gil Baeza can't forget one image in particular, the bodies of 
eight girls who were about to be part of the Olympic welcoming committee. She says they looked like broken dolls in their uniforms covered in blood. Ortiz Muñiz is about to turn 70. He's aging, but he's never forgotten. Now he's an advisor to newly elected Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. That's in part why AMLO's new government has vowed to create a commission for reconciliation. Calling the 1968 killings a crime of the state may be a first step towards that reconciliation. I'm Joy Diaz for The Texas Standard. should you have to be to join the military? How old should you have to be to buy tobacco products? In a city with a major military presence, these two questions come together with potential ripple effects across Texas and perhaps nationwide. That's next as The Standard continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. You're tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Your 18th birthday is a major moment in the life of many a teenager. Magically, all of a sudden, you're entitled to a host of new privileges. You can vote, you can serve in the military, you can buy a lottery ticket. But in San Antonio, what you cannot do is buy tobacco products, at least not anymore. Yesterday, a new ordinance went into effect in the Alamo City, raising the minimum age to buy things like cigarettes and vaping devices from 18 to 21. Here to talk over this new rule, Gilbert Garcia. He is a Metro columnist for the San Antonio Express News. Gilbert, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much. San Antonio, as I understand it, is the first city in Texas to pass an ordinance like this one. How did this get on the city council's docket in the first place? Well, I think that there's been a kind of a, a movement uh, nationally that we've seen building. I think Needham, Massachusetts was the first city to do this in tw- uh, 2005. And uh, they found uh, within you know five years or so that uh, high school smoking had dropped by nearly 50%. And so you started to see other cities and counties uh, and a few states do this. Um, and Dr. Colleen Bridger, who's the director of San Antonio's Metropolitan Health District, I think really uh, made the push for this last year. And the argument that she made was that for her, it was as much about 14-year-olds as it was those in the 18 to 20 range. And hmm. I think her argument was that there's kind of a pipeline that exists between, say, a high school senior and a high school freshman where uh, the socialization process, smoke, cigarettes get passed from one to another. And she thought if we could cut off that pipeline, that uh, it's likely that many of those kids will never smoke. So if I understand the argument correctly, it's that you're more likely to have an 18-year-old still in high school than a 21-year-old, basically. Exactly, and that they're li- uh, likely to to pass on the habit to younger high school students. And and I think she has, you know, has looked at, at studies finding that if you don't smoke by the time uh, you're, say, 21, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's unlikely that you're going to start smoking later. Well, what about the fact that there, I mean, all you would have to do, is, if I understand the ordinance correctly, you just have to skip right across the city boundary and you could go to a convenience store if you were 18 years old and still buy cigarettes or, or vaping pens. 
Yeah, and I think it's 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 a, a, a really strong argument that was presented during this process that, you know, there are obviously many suburbs just a, a few minutes away for a lot of people uh, who would want to be able to uh, to get around this law. And uh, and I think it was particularly a concern for small uh, business owners, the people who have small convenience stores mm-hmm. saying that, you know, they, they really depend on cigarette sales and they're going to get hurt and it's going to going to be to the benefit of some of these suburban stores. Um, and I, I think that, that council members took that into account, but I think they still felt that the only, obviously the only power they had was to deal with San Antonio. And the hope was that uh, some of these other communities will, will follow. Yeah. Uh, you anticipated my question about the business community's reaction so far. So it sounds like uh, some in San Antonio don't like this step. We've seen the legislature, however, weigh in on uh, local matters like this one before bag bans come to mind. Of course, there was banning fracking within a city's limits, that sort of thing. Paid sick leave is probably going to be on the, uh, uh, you know, on the table in the next legislative session. What about this tobacco ordinance? You think it's likely they'll take a look at it, uh, the ledge I'm talking about? I think they will take a look at it, and I think it's it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it because you know there has been a push. Uh, I think going back to 2007. Uh, uh, really driven by Democrats in the legislature to try to to create a statewide uh, tobacco 21 law, and I think gradually a few Republicans have come on board over the years, but the, you know we still haven't really uh, seen anything happen uh, at the state level, and so I think that you you will probably have some conflicting. Uh, interest here. You will have some people in the legislature who think the time is right for the state to take action on it. And then you'll have some who will say, um, who will want to reverse what we're seeing in San Antonio. Gilbert Garcia is a Metro columnist for the San Antonio Express News. We'll link to his latest at texasstandard.org. Gilbert, thanks so much for speaking with us again on the Texas Standard. Thank you. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, proud to support Texas businesses that make safety a number one priority in the workplace. More about safety-focused workers' comp at WorkSafeTexas.com. Here he is. He's uh, back. Our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, has been monitoring what Texans are talking about on this Tuesday, and I'm thinking Kavanaugh is still trending. Kavanaugh, definitely. Some interesting dimensions to the Kavanaugh stuff, and we'll get to that momentarily. And another interesting non-Kavanaugh bit of news that actually does exist. The uh, term Amazon, there's another name you probably know. Amazon is trending after the online uh, retailer Behemoth announced that it would begin uh, offering a $15 an hour wage as a floor. So $15 an hour as a minimum wage from That's, the retailer. So what is that? About twice what the federal minimum wage is, uh, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, Something along I, those think, lines? I think so. So, you know, this comes amid a lot of uh, political pressure. I think Bernie Sanders especially mm-hmm. had been uh, had been uh, taking Amazon to task for uh, for their wages. So Amazon says that they are going to offer these now, and this offer this impacts a lot of people in Texas. There's mm-hmm. warehouses in uh, around San Antonio, San Marcos, Dallas, Houston. It also has uh, corporate offices in Austin. Mm-hmm. So lots of folks sounding off on this one in Austin. Sam says that it's a huge move for them after taking so much guff for their employees' quality of life concerns. And Hope Doty says, you made the right choice. I'm proud to be your customer. Uh, interesting 
comment here from Zach O. He says uh, via Twitter that he saw another comment said that Amazon is going to go bankrupt now that they've raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour. LOL. LOL. Yeah, because they, they did apparently rake in, I think, some $2 billion in profits wow. last quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy stuff there. Yeah, I, just for clarification, I believe that the floor is currently $7.25 wow. an hour, and that's so, what Texas follows. It's yeah, so that's yeah, double that. Uh, and, uh, you know, one, one other interesting aspect of this, too, I did see some people raising this on Twitter. Twitter, uh, that Amazon outsources so much, especially the, right. the delivery. So right. I do wonder uh, what it will mean for those employees. But we have heard a lot about you know the conditions in those Amazon warehouses right. and stuff. So. I mean, I'm not even sure if they're classified as employees. Yeah. A lot of times they're contractors. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So uh, more to come on that for Certainly. sure. But okay, as promised, another Kavanaugh-related term, although a slightly different tack here. The term UB40 is trending yes you're talking about the british reggae group yes purveyors of red red wine that they are yes the uh, (laughs) english reggae pop band this is after the new york times reported on a 1985 bar fight involving kavanaugh and some of his buddies which transpired after a ub40 concert what had happened is that him and his buddies were at the bar and one of them sees this uh, some bloke sitting over there and then one of his one of his buddies is like hey is that the guy from ub40 i think it is and i think words are exchanged and next according to the police report uh brett kavanaugh throws his drink throws some ice at the guy and a melee ensues no one uh, none of the kavanaugh none, none, brett uh, kavanaugh or none of his friends are arrested but uh i think the guy the the non-singer guy that looked was like mistaken the singer, for the guy the mistaken from identity i believe had some injuries uh and a report well was i guess taken. it was only a matter of time that ub40 would be dragged into this right yeah I mean, you know yeah. if you had ub40 on your bingo cards ding 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 my i tip my hat to you <laughs> in houston john says i don't know what ticks me off more the fact that i had to search for why everyone was talking about ub40 or the reason everyone is talking about ub40 good guy good, yeah good question well, uh, we'd be out of time, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but we're going to be back here tomorrow, uh, same time, at uh, Wells Dunbar here and myself. And we hope you will join us, too. Uh, of course, the news continues, as always, at TexasStandard.org. But till Wednesday, I'm Dave Brown wishing you a wonderful, wonderful midweek. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.